הבחירה שמונחת מול אזרחי ישראל היא לא ביני לבין נתניהו. הבחירה היא בין העתיד לבין העבר. We're Election Overdose, recording at Haaret Studios in Tel Aviv on Thursday morning, July the 21st, 102 days to go until the big day. And with me, of course, is Dalia Shendlin, here to bravely shine the light of truth and reason into the heart of darkness, which is Israeli politics. Hi, Dalia. How are you? Not bad. How was week three of this election season for you, Dalia? Well, I think that I feel it's a little bit um, understated so far. I don't think there's a ton of news. I think that it's still the quiet... calm before the storm. I don't think the campaigns have really burst out in earnest, and I think the voters are only partly paying attention right now. So I think they're sharpening their ideas. They're waiting for the list to close. They're waiting for the parties to you know, make their final decisions. And we're getting bits and pieces of, I, I feel like they're all test, uh, floating test balloons about the ideas that they're going to be talking about. Well, I agree. I mean, this is still very kind of low-gear elections, but it was, I think, also in many ways the first real week of the election campaign, partly because in the previous two weeks we had other issues obscuring the elections. We had Yair Lapid just becoming prime minister, then Joe Biden arriving to say hi to the new prime minister before he left to fist bump with the crown princes in Saudi. And now we can kind of focus on what there is. And what there is so far, I think, is a bit of movement On all the front, all the parties are now kind of in that early stage of selecting leaders, working out the process for selecting candidates for their Knesset lists, uh, launching, like you said, kind of test, little mini test campaigns. Um, you get the feeling that they're trying to test the waters, decide what what campaign can they, can they if at all, run during August? Or maybe they'll just sit it out and let people get on with their summer holidays and come back in September. And on that point, you know, I'd like to ask you, Dalia, since you're the one of us who's worked in campaigns, many campaigns, what does a campaign do when it's faced with a long summer, and in our case, after the summer, the Chagin, the Jewish festivals? How do you get organized for that? Well, the interesting thing is the contrast, I think, with the United States, where, of course, there's basically a permanent campaign. There's no start date, and people are always campaigning. So it's so different here. Uh, of course, most of my experience has been here. And as I know campaigns, there's always a sort of you know, uh, launch moment, whether it's two months or three months before, usually it's about three months before. I think the big challenge for a campaign, uh, you know, when there is a long phase like this is, are there any candidates or parties that need to be introduced to the public? Does the public need time to learn who somebody is? And, you know, if you have extra time, the thing you do is try to use it to educate the public about a candidate that might not be as well known or who is not clearly branded yet or a new party. But this is different because there aren't very many new quantities at all in this election because of this very strange situation in which this is the fifth election and, you know, just over three years. And every party is known, even if they reshuffle. In fact, we're not even hearing very much about the potential for brand new parties and minimal new candidates right now. If there are any, they haven't formally announced yet. And so right now, the parties, again, I think they're just testing out their ideas rather than needing to try to educate the public about what they stand for. And we're all waiting for, I mean, perhaps not all of us, but people are waiting for the one perhaps star candidate who can add into this mix, which is former chief of staff, Gadi Eisenkorn. But even if and when he decides which party he's joining and when to do that, he's a known quantity. We kind of know who he is. He's held, he held one of the most prominent 
positions in Israeli public life until a few years ago. So yeah, there isn't at this time, we, we can't predict what we can't predict, but there doesn't seem to be some unknown quantity kind of getting into this uh, into this campaign. So what did happen this week? What were the main events uh, to your mind? Well, I think the most important event that we were all paying attention to happened in the beginning of the week, and that was the leadership contest for the head of the Labour Party, which was unusual for a number of reasons, mostly because of the result uh, and the fact that Meirav Michaeli was re-elected, making her one of the very few ever Labour leaders to win a second term as leader of the party. The party has developed a reputation, in Hebrew we say, of uh, devouring its leaders, and with good reason. Hold on, but, 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 for our, but, but for our listeners who are not as well-versed as you are with Labour history, who is the last Labour leader to have won a second consecutive term? I think that's about 30 years ago. Uh, more. more. Well, second consecutive term. You have to tell me. Shimon Peres in 88. There you go. Actually, that was his there third. You go. That, by then, it was his third or fourth. Too bad even. he couldn't actually win elections. He couldn't. Obviously, Yitzhak Rabin would have run and probably have won a second consecutive term had he not been assassinated. But since Peres back in 88, no Labour leader has won a second. Some have, some have won second terms. Barack won a second term. Amir Peretz won second term. But they didn't do that consecutively. They lost the leadership and then they came back afterwards. Uh, so yeah, Mirav Michali, and we'll talk about Mirav Michali and Labour at length in a bit. What other what other main events caught your eye? Well, the other big event that happened is also on the left side of the political map, and that's that Zahava Galon, who is a uh, not only a former leader of Meretz, but kind of a legendary figurehead in Meretz, has announced that she will be coming back to politics. Uh, she even got into a little kerfuffle when she wrote on her Twitter profile that she's the leader of Meretz, even though they haven't had their leadership contest yet. They will do that at the end of, uh, in late August. And there is a lot of expectation that she'll do well. Now, Angel, do you think in one word, and we're going to discuss this in greater length, is this a good or a bad thing? That's a very tough question to answer because on the one hand, she's obviously popular. We're seeing it in the polls. She will probably win the leadership race unless some unexpected candidate. It's just her and Yair Golan, and we're seeing polls showing that three quarters of the merits membership want her back on the other hand they're bringing back a leader who at the time wasn't very popular didn't do very well when it came to gaining seats for merits but we'll talk about that more at length in a moment that was not a one-word answer but i accept it so what happened on the right side of the political map well we had the non-primaries in Likud on monday Likud's uh, internal election committee announced that there will not be primaries because no one has uh, presented that no one has challenged Benjamin Netanyahu so he's surprise surprise still leader of Likud I think that he would actually be happier if there was a race to kind of like waken up his party he he came alive back in December 2019 when he ran against Gidon Sar and people were saying that this was the best thing that was happening to Likud that Bibi could go around the country and speak to activists it was obviously he was going to win it would have been obvious if there was a primary this year he was going to win and for him, it was a way of re-energizing Likud. I don't think he likes the fact that he's being seen now as this sole dictator of the party, even though, of course, he is. What do you think? Well, I think that it makes him look a bit like a cult of personality. He's unchallenged. You know, in the past, he's liked to say, well, Likud is a very democratic party because we have primaries. But given that, as you put it, he, he looks a little more like a dictator. Is he starting to turn into a cult of personality? I mean, we had this very bizarre incident this week of the infamous gold pendant necklace with his image on the pendant. What does that mean? I mean, 
is it just, you know, is he trying, is he happy or not happy about a campaign that's going to look like it's all about him for Likud? Well, Netanyahu is certainly someone who likes there to be a cult, a personality cult around him, but he wants to be the one controlling that personality cult. And when people who he doesn't know are suddenly selling mar- merchandise on his back, making both, both making money out of it, which he never likes anybody making money off him. And also, Unless it's him. Well, exactly. And also, uh, this suddenly becoming a feature of, of party events. I mean, we knew about this. The, the, the Israeli media suddenly paid notice to, the, to this uh, loyalty necklace at an event on Sunday night when Yisrael Katz, the former uh, finance and transport minister who was at this event, was suddenly basically being forced by uh, Likud members to put on the necklace, and he was very uncomfortable about the idea. That's how we learned about it the, the, with the Israeli media. And the next morning, Netanyahu, who was in London at the time, put out a video sort of kind of distancing himself from it. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like the fact that people are doing things that he he isn't controlling. And it and you can understand why. It 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 looks tacky. It looks positively North Korean. And he wants to be the one deciding exactly how much Pyongyang gets here. That's an interesting image. I think that um what I found interesting was the contrast with with Yeshatid and Yair Lapid, who gave a speech that's already being criticized as a kind of lame campaign launch. But he said in the speech, this line, you know, these elections are not about me or Netanyahu. It's between the future and the past. And I think that he's trying to draw precisely this contrast that from Yesha Teed's perspective, it's not a personality contest. And we're trying not to create a cult of personality. But Netanyahu is the one who's trying to make it all about him. And that's basically what he said in his speech. And I guess the question is, do you think the voters care about this kind of thing? I mean, the idea that I am not a cult of personality, I care about big ideas, it sounds charming, but I sometimes wonder if the voters simply prefer cult of personality. I don't think the voters get to choose whether or not they're voting on the basis of personality or other issues. I think every individual, when they get there to, to vote, they've got a whole range of motives and reasons for whatever they choose, whether it's personality, whether it's ideology, whether it's tribal affiliation, or tactical things as well. You know, am I going to vote for this party? But what if they don't pass the threshold, and so on? And obviously, personality is a is a major thing, whether we like it or not. And <coughs> Yair Lapid has, for the past thirty years, also been meticulously building his personality every bit as much as Netanyahu has over the past forty years since he became. Literally this month, 40 years ago, the deputy ambassador in Washington, which is basically when his public career began. So personality is certainly going to be a major thing. I thought it was interesting the quote that you chose about Lapid saying we're about the future and they're about the past. And there's certainly a personality element there. There's an age gap of about uh, 14 or 15 years between Lapid and Netanyahu. And even though Lapid will not certainly will not publicly call Netanyahu old. I'll be very surprised if he does at any point. There is an image here that he wants to conjure up in the mind of uh, of voters and the fact that Netanyahu has been very uh, adept at sort of hiding his age over the years. He's going to be 73, 10 days before election day. I'll be very surprised if he and they could make a big deal out of that specific birthday. He doesn't want us to remember that he's in his early 70s, almost mid 70s by now. He doesn't want us to remember the fact that he's a grandfather. Mazel Tov, just, to, just this week, his fifth grandchild was uh, was born. Uh, we've, ne- we've never seen him over the years uh, 
even in a photograph with the, with his grandchildren, the the children of the daughter of his first marriage, Noah. Now we know there are various reasons, which are not political, that uh, that have led to this. Uh, some will call it an estrangement. Some just call it a kind of keeping behind the scenes of of his of his daughter from his first marriage and and her children. But it certainly helped when it comes to Netanyahu's image of this man who's forever young and always full of vigor and energy and certainly not the grandfather. He wants to be Israel's wise man. He doesn't want to be Israel's wise old. That's an interesting point because I remember that when he made his debut into the Israeli local political scene, the domestic scene, which is his incredible success at the 1996 election, the defining moment of that election for me and I think for many Israelis was the debate with Shimon Peres, in which Shimon Peres was really sort of falling all over and couldn't really uh, gather enough energy to respond. And Netanyahu basically ran circles around him with all sorts of accusations. He accused him of dividing Jerusalem. Perez looked like he was stopped in his tracks and he looked old. And Netanyahu, by contrast, looked like, you know, he reminded anybody with an American political sensibility. It reminded me of the Kennedy-Nixon debates. He was younger. He had was full of vigor. And he talked more, you know, smoothly. And I think that that's the image that he wants to retain in Israeli politics. At the same time, Netanyahu was actually trying to look older. He was in his early 40s. I think someone was doing something with his hair to highlight the gray or the silver in it. And uh, even the the campaign ads then in, in 96, you had Netanyahu speaking from sort of like a office of a statesman with books and leather around him and Shimon Perez going out and hugging young uh, young young people that they, they which both, probably served to make him look even older yeah probably and they but they both were dealing them with an age problem and Netanyahu won that contest and kind of made us made his image kind of set in stone a kind of a Dorian Gray forever young uh, figure and I think in the same way that he's uncomfortable with people putting out these loyalty necklaces because even though these people are his supporters they are doing something to his image that he can't control he wants to control how he's seen by by israelis and when yair lapid says they're the past that's the image that yair lapid wants us to think he wants us to think old well it is interesting that you picked up on the dorian gray image because there might very well be skeletons in netanyahu's closet as well at the Mount Meron celebrations of just over a year ago, uh, which turned into a, a stampede and over 40 people died, and now he's facing charges that he allowed those celebrations to go on despite corona restrictions, he may even be facing criminal charges, although that is theoretical at this point. Angel, do you think this could actually hurt him, even though all of these corruption cases up until now have not hurt him at the electoral level? Well, I know both of us were listening uh, quite attentively until we got into the studio to record today's podcast, listening to Netanyahu's testimony at the Miron uh, Commission. And it's quite striking the way he was trying to say, you know, I'm a prime minister, I get thousands of letters and and I'm, I'm CC'd on thousands of letters every day. You can't expect me to know what everything, everything that comes into my office because that's what I have a team to do and so on. And... I kept thinking this is the commission that Netanyahu tried to prevent. It happened on his watch. It happened before the election. There was all this time for them to set up their own commission, the previous government. They didn't do that for, for, for reasons that we're now seeing. This is not, this, these are not good optics. Having a prime minister, in now, now former prime minister, saying, I couldn't have prevented the worst civilian a disaster in Israel's history where 45 people were crushed to death because 
I'm just too busy. It doesn't look good. I don't. I'll be surprised if this does come to to criminal charges. I think that I think Netanyahu will come will come in for a lot of criticism from the from the commission's vote when it, for, sorry for the commission's report whenever it comes out. And I don't think this is going to really have that much of an eff, uh, effect on the election. But it's a cumulative thing. It's, we we spoke a moment ago about how Netanyahu doesn't want to be seen old. He likes to be seen as a prime minister who was on top of things. Now he's being forced to admit that no prime minister can be on top of everything. Or he has to admit that he was on top of it and he didn't sign the document actually allowing it because he didn't want his name on it, but that he knew about it. That's the other option. But, that, but that, that's, um, not the option. He's sure that's not the option he's chosen. He's gone down the path exactly. of saying a prime minister can't deal with thousands of things. And that's true. He's saying the truth there, but it, what he's actually saying is also, I'm a human being and a prime minister is a human being. And he's been trying to tell us for so many years that he's a superhuman being and only he can be a prime minister, therefore. Well, in a way, he's he's being punished for having projected the image all these years that he controls everything. And if he controls everything, then he was responsible for this, too. But let me ask you something on the electoral level. You said you don't think it'll really affect him. But I'm wondering if it might actually cause just some number of people who formerly were the supporters, to be really angry about this, but because maybe they are sort of close to the Haredi world, and this was, of course, you know, Haredim who were who are the victims of this tragedy, and there is some, there are other options. They have Haredi parties they could vote for. They also have religious Zionism, which is an interesting um, party right now because they're doing very well in the polls, and we can talk about what's going on with them this week. Do you think this might cause some people to go over to religious Zionism and I'm going to add to that question. What is going on with the religious Zionist party this week? I think that the motives of pro-Netanyahu religious, soon-to-be formerly good voters, are, 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 it's a four-dimensional issue that I know pollsters like you analyze. It, I, I don't think we can we can pinpoint Miron as being the specific thing that will push them in another direction, though it certainly could be. Okay, so what is going on with religious Zionists this week? So what's happening in religious Zionism is, is we don't even know if it's a real disagreement or mini crisis or it's something that's being staged. But the two leaders of the two main parties that make up that list of deplorables, Itamar Ben-Gvir's Jewish Power and Bezalel Smotrich's uh, National Union, they're having a bit of an argument of how to put the list together, which candidates from which side will be there, who will be in which position. In the background, there's an interesting poll saying that if Itamar Bengvir was leading the, the the joint list of these two parties, they would win three more seats in in the next. It's just one poll, but it's uh, it's certainly adding some of the pressure there. Now Bengvir is saying publicly, "I don't want to be number one. I want Smotrich to be number one as he was in the last election." But at the same time, he he wants to be number two, and he wants to get more spots for his people on the list. And there are a lot of there's a lot of tension. There is some real tension there because the kind of people Bengvir wants are the kind of people that perhaps for Smotrich, who does come come from a sort of religious Zionist establishment position, they're the kind of people he doesn't want to see in the list. He's afraid that they'll that they may uh, dilute the, the the sanctity of his of his list. That people who are perhaps less religious, some of his voters may not like that. Some of them may decide they if that's the case they they prefer. A Haredi party, and it also w- will be much less his list. Now, in the current Knesset, the only Jewish power MK is Bengvir. So, Smotrich has a lot more control over the party in the Knesset. The next Knesset, there's, we're assuming based on the polls that they'll do quite well eight, nine, 
10, perhaps even more seats. They'll be the third or fourth largest party, like I said. Smotrich, at the same time, will be the leader of, the, of, of a party, but he'll only have half that party. And that's really what he's worried about right now. I'm just going to point out that when I kept reading the headlines all week about them negotiating about whether they can, you know, remerge and what they're trying to uh, resolve in order to do that, I kept expecting the articles to say, well, they are talking about ideology and they're talking about the direction of the party. But in the end, all they're ever talking about is what you pointed out in the beginning, who gets which positions, how many of the seats on the list go to the Jewish power party led by Tamar Ben-Gvir. And so I think it's just all politics. But I do want to pick up on the poll that you mentioned, because that, to my mind, is the interesting polling update of the week. That is a poll that was conducted by Channel 13 and, and highly publicized. All the other media were talking about that poll for a number of reasons. And one, as you point out, was that they tested two different options, one with religious the, the party religious Zionism led by Smotrich, in which it got 10 seats, like in most other polls. But then the option in which Ben Gvir is leading the party, and in that case, they got 13 seats. So it looks like a significant difference, although we have to remember, these are very minor differences in terms of the number of respondents well within the margin of error. So we don't know whether to take it seriously, but it definitely uh, influenced the public environment when people were talking about it all week. And I'm sure that it influenced the negotiations that are going on this week. But there were other interesting things about that poll. And that's really the big one that we have to talk about. One is that the new Gantz-Sa'ar merger that we talked about so extensively last week only got 12 seats in that poll, even though they have 14 seats altogether today in the outgoing Knesset. So you know, the question is whether that merger will see any sort of rise relative to their outgoing Knesset strength. So far, we're not getting much indication of that. Of course, it's early. Of course, everything is subject to you know change and dynamism as the list close. But so far, we have no evidence of it. Um, and the other thing that I noticed about that poll, which is what I've noticed about every single poll, is that the two ultra-Orthodox parties, United Torah Judaism and Shas, always invariably get 15 seats combined. I can't remember the last time I saw a poll when they had more or less. Angel, do you think that they have just a rock-solid base that is neither going to grow nor shrink in this election? I think that they have a rock-solid base. I also think that your colleagues, the pollsters, kind of since it's, they are notoriously much more difficult to poll, usually give them what they got the last election, and we don't often see many changes there. You you may want to defend some of your colleagues in this case, but I think that there's a bit of a default position when it comes to assessing what the strength of, of UTJ is. Uh, and a lot of what we're seeing now anyway is just this kind of early polls, which are mainly looking at the parties that need the polls to assess how they're going to go ahead, whether whether they'll merge, whether they'll split, wh who's the leader. And when it comes to UTJ, it doesn't. it's not based in polls. The rabbis decide there what the list is going to be, which spot we're going to have the ritual kind of, will they, won't they split this time, they won't split, and it'll be it, it'll all be preordained from heaven. Well, I'm not going to defend anybody because polls have their strengths and their weaknesses. But I will say that they're not usually very wrong with relation to the ultra-Orthodox parties, except for the famous uh, misfire in 1999 when Shas did way better than anybody predicted. But there's always or often a surprise in Israeli elections. But in general, in recent years, the polls are pretty spot on when it comes to the Haredi parties, uh, preferably for the reasons you mentioned that, you know, we don't we're not expecting to see surprises in how the voters make up their well, minds. Well, when you say the Haredi parties, there is one Haredi party and there's Shas, which 
is run like a Haredi party, but most of his voters aren't Haredim. And that's why the pollsters can get Shas so wrong sometimes, because Shas voters are, many of them are actually Likud voters who kind of float between either party. UTJ are pretty solid. Their voters are almost 99% or whatever Haredim. And we know we know where they where they stand. The worst thing that can happen to UDJ or the, the surprise is that they can lose some of their rock solid Haredi voters to parties mainly religious Zionism. I would only slightly disagree with you. I think about Shas, and that's because I think that at other times, specifically in 1999, you were exactly right. And at this point, with Shas being pretty stable around the eight or not, you know, seven, eight, nine seat range, I think that they're much more made up of Haredi uh, voters and some who reflect the demographic that you just pointed out, people who are not Haredi but float between Shas and Likud, but it's not a great number. And that wraps up our news banter for what happened this week in the election campaign. And now we're going to focus on our special topic of the week. The most important topic of this week, we think, is what happened among the left-wing parties, which we just barely discussed in the beginning. But we think it warrants a bigger discussion because this is the future of the left in Israel. Interesting developments among the left-wing Zionist parties in Israel, Labor and Meretz. We have the primary in which Meirad Mechali was re-elected as the head of Labor, and we have the return of Zahaba Galon, who has not yet won a leadership contest, but is certainly uh, seems favored to win. So these are important developments. Why are they important, Angel, actually? What do they say about the left in Israel? To be honest, I'm not so sure they're they're important. They're certainly important to our to our listeners. Who, <laughs> After I just said they were important. Now you say they're not important. I'm not sure they're Fine. important. These Defend are t- your these position. These are too small. That, well, I don't have a position here. I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not taking a position on this question because are they important? They're two small parties struggling to remain relevant. Now I'm I'm assuming that Haaretz readers and listeners of of Haaretz podcasts have a certain let's say fondness for or nostalgia for these two parties and and they obviously uh, we and they think they are important but that's a real question here are these parties important anymore one of them was the party which was supposed to lead israel which did lead israel which founded israel and led it for for half of its existence labor and the other party merits a younger party in many ways because it was Another of, another of the joint lists we talk about, it was a joint list in 1992 of ma- mainly Mapam and Rats. Also, Shinoi jo- joined at the time, but left. And over the years, the two parties were fused together into one party merits. But they were always sort of the left of Labour parties, the parties that had to be the corrective to left to kind of remind uh, Labour of, of ideology, remind Labour that... It, it, it couldn't just stick to security centrism. It has to also think of other considerations. Those are the roles. Labour was supposed to be the party of power. Merits was, was supposed to be the ideological vanguard who try and pull Labour a bit away from the centre. But let's just point out something about how far Labour has come from the vision that you just laid out. They are Their membership is, is, is at practically a historic low with only 36,000 party members relative to you know, a hundred and even up to two hundred thousand at their, in, you know, in e- even just a few decades ago. Now, eighty-three percent voted for Michaeli, which is a sweeping victory for her, but only forty-three percent of them turned out to vote, and it was electronic and remote voting, so it wasn't even that hard. Do you think that says something about a certain apathy among Labour members? Well, is there certainly an apathy amongst Labour members who are no longer Labour members because they haven't uh, renewed their membership? Like you said, they're at an all-time low. 
amongst the existing uh, members. I don't think that the low turnout necessarily indicates anything. It was a foregone conclusion that Micheli was going to win. Her rival, Iran Hermoni, the party secretary general, is not a very liked figure, let's say that, let's put it mildly. He's seen as a bit of a nuisance. The fact that he got about 17 or 18 percent of the vote is is <laughs> something of an achievement for him. So I don't think many of the Labour members, even those who are engaged, felt necessarily a burning need to go and vote this week. They they, they knew that Mirav uh, Micheli had it in the bag. I don't think it was a question so much of of the membership anymore. I think it's a much wider question of who are the traditional Labour constituency? Who are the people who, back in the day, voted Labour? You know, we're talking about the days when they had over th- over a third of the total vote. We're down now to three or four percent of the vote. Where have all those people gone? They haven't all died out because we do have elections as recent as 2015 when Labour got about 20, uh, what was it, 26? 24 seats. 20, 20, 24, 24 seats, so about 20 percent of the vote. So that's still double digits, still a significant figure. They haven't very, very quickly died, even despite COVID. The, 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 you know, that no, was... but I would say it's it's a reasonable guess that you say that. And the reason is that labor and in general, the center left, the left, the Zionist left, the Jewish left in Israel is an older demographic. Younger Israelis in all survey research over the last decade, at least, I think probably 15 years now, shows that younger Israeli Jews lean more towards the right. And the older 55 and plus uh, demographic among the Jewish population is more moderate, centrist, and left, and among labor voters, that is definitely the case. So it's not it's not an unreasonable proposition that some of them have died. But I think that the main thing that's happened, and we saw this very clearly between 2013 and 2015, um, and I did work on the 2015 campaign for the Zionist Union, which was the merger between the Labor Party and, at the time, Tipi Livni's party called the movement, Hatnua. What happened was that Yeshati did very well, surprisingly well, something no pollster predicted in 2013. And they got 19 seats, largely at labor's expense. By 2015, Yeshati plunged back down to only 10 seats. And most of those people simply went back to what at the time looked like it was going to mount the biggest challenge to Netanyahu, which was this exciting merger of Tipi Livni's party and the Labour Party. And I think that it was really that the, the two parties, Yeshatid and this new version of Labour, were trading voters. You know, when one, And that's what happened in the polls throughout the next phase between 2015 and 2019. All polls showed that when Labour was up, Yeshatid was down. When Yeshatid, fairly shortly after the 2015 elections, began climbing in the surveys, then, of course, right away, the Zionist Union was going down and it was never really able to come back up from that. So these are very much the same voters. And I guess the question is, if those voters think that Yeshatid still represents the biggest hope for forming the next government and keeping Netanyahu from coming back to power, why should any of them go back to labor? Uh, and Meretz, I think, in a way, has a more built-in constituency of supporters, even though Meretz is always in danger of falling below the 3.25% voter threshold. But I do think that in a way they're more stable because they're so ideological. Nobody expects Meretz to do great, but there's a small and devoted portion, you know, it's just a few percent of the population who believe that Meretz will be committed to their ideals and they want them to cross the threshold. Whereas Labor, I think at this point, the what you've called the identity vote, the people who just identify with labor historically, maybe they're kibbutz people, maybe they just, you know, it's their family and their tradition. I think there are fewer of them. And the rest of the voters are thinking strategically, 
what's the best opportunity for keeping Netanyahu back into power? So I would say in a way, labor has a, a tougher challenge than merits even, although that doesn't mean merits will do better than labor. I just think that it's going to be much harder for labor to pull back voters from Yeshati. Do you agree? I agree. And it's not just a question of attracting voters. It's also about how labor sees itself. Now, labor cannot see itself as anything other than the party of Ben-Gurion and Moshe Dayan and Golda and Eshkol, etc. It's and, you know, Rabin in Paris, all these people who built the state and led the state for so many years. A labor leader cannot, cannot see herself as not being part of that group. And that means that they have to say, we are a potential party of power. They're not a potential party of power as long as Yair Lapid and Yeshatid are on the field and are currently Lapid's prime minister and are the ones who are look, look like the better option, the more likely alternative of a center-left party to become the party of power. So Labour doesn't really have a role that it can that it can relate to if it's just about surviving then what what are you there for if you're not if you're not going to be a party of power and in a way this also affects merits because if merits is job and at the time when merits was founded in 1992 yossi sarid one of the one of the founding leaders came up with the slogan Yumratz Rabin. Rabin was then leader of the of, of the of Labour. And basically they were saying Rabin needs to be meritified. Merits' job was never to be the party of power, but it was always to be the party which kind of was riding on the party of power, trying nudging it, trying to pull on its reins in Merit's case, taking it leftwards. What does Merit The do conscience now? of Labour's left-wing ideology. And, uh, so so if, if 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 Labour is no longer a, pot a potential party of power, so what is merits? Is merits the conscience of labor, which labor is also a similar sized small party? Merits certainly won't be the conscience of Yair Lapid. So I agree, merits has a set of ideals, of very, what I, I certainly see as very important and essential values for, uh, for Israel. It's very much about political positioning, and it's not. You know, we were talking about before in the context of a very different joint list of uh, religious Zionism, if, whether the the maneuvers there are to do with just politics and who gets which seat and who's positioned where, and and or is it about ideals? At the end of the day, politics is very much about where you sit on the political spectrum. And Merritt's job was to sit just to the left of the party of power. Now it's at best two parties to the left of the, uh, of the party of power and that also changes the way merit has to see itself and this kind of leads to the question do either of these parties have much of a future or do they have to reinvent themselves when was the last time they came up with a new idea since basically oslo and when they renamed themselves the peace camp in the 90s well, I think that's really a critical question because ultimately what happened during Oslo was that Labour became the party most heavily associated with what came to be known as the two-state solution. But of course, it wasn't known as the two-state solution in the 90s, but it did become the party of peace with relation to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whatever that meant to you. But the other change that Labour went through at the time, which I think is often kind of forgotten in the discourse about who Labour has become in the Israeli political spectrum, is that it became the party of liberal values. Now, that is an important change because, of course, Labour's founding ideology as the party that built the state was a socialist ethos. Never mind that there were, it was really more social democratic, if you know, you could say, and not pure socialism, depending on which aspect you're looking at. But that was the self-image and that was the country's image of labor. And this was a big transition. Now, Meretz was established in order to really, you know, focus on that issue, liberal values, socially progressive values, bringing in other issues, and of course, peace uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian front. But I think that in a way, other parties in the center have adopted 
liberal values. Certainly when it comes to a free market economy, there's, you know, it, it's hard to compete with Yeshatid and even Lieberman at this point for that, for the social economic approach. They're all basically social democratic in terms of supporting the welfare state in Israel, which is much more robust than in places like the US, of course. And so it's not clear that labor has any real vision to offer on the social and economic issues. Social, I mean, you know, when it comes to social values, because Meretz has the progressive value uh, system kind of cornered, right? It's got that market cornered. A very small market, a very small free market, obviously, from, from the numbers. But part of the tragedy of progressive fa uh, parties is that when they win on the on the ideolo ideological battlefield, they often lose on the electoral battlefield. Because let's take perhaps what was uh, Shulamit Aloni, the the main founder and spiritual mother of Merit's one of her main uh, campaigns over many years, and the one that she was almost the, perhaps the only Knesset member at the time championing this campaign was LGBT rights. And she was talking about this long before anyone in Israeli mainstream politics. That was one or, one of Merit's banners over the years. Now you can go as far right as Likud and, and find openly gay MKs and ministers, well, not ministers now, but in the previous government, who who are there in this, what is now a very non-liberal Likud party. So Merit's won on that issue in many ways. It's no longer an electoral asset for them. Right. In the way, they're a victim of their own success. And of course, uh, that we, even with the most recent leader being a, a, a LGBT and a minister, the minister of health, Nitzan Horowitz, that doesn't necessarily buy it any unique credibility anymore. I agree. And I think that the problem is that ultimately, because of this kind of crisis of, you know, what does ideology actually buy you in Israeli politics, then the question becomes, is it all strategic? And should those two parties run together. Labor and merits, that has been a big discussion over the course of the week. It is a dividing line between the candidates who were running for the leadership of labor and a conversation within merits. And I have to say that I'm going to answer my own question and then you can tell me what you think. I don't think they should combine, despite everything we said about the very problematic positioning of labor and what is it really worth? And if its historic role is gone and it's a victim of its own success, why does it matter really. But I do think that historically we see that when parties merge, they are very likely to do worse than their combined strength as separate parties in the outgoing Knesset. Now, it's not always the case, but it's mostly the case. And so I think that they really need to, I, I guess I think that they should stay separate and make enormous voter turnout efforts and, and run great campaigns. And hopefully they'll do, uh, you know, from their perspective, as well as they did in the outgoing Knesset, which might be the best they can do. 13 seats altogether. So I'll say just two short things about that. One, when parties merge, and we talk about joint lists, uh, well, there is the joint list, they, they kind of corner the name. But the truth is that we have many joint lists in the case, and, and we were talking earlier about the, the recent polling about the joint list of, uh, of Blue and White and New Hope. It's not just a question of do your seats and my, uh, do your seats and my seats add up and will the whole be bigger than the sum of its parts? It's also about what you can do on, from a certain position. And I don't think the only question is, will merits and labor, if they join and currently they have 13 seats in the Knesset, will they have 13 or more in the next Knesset running together? And, and will it be considered a failure if they only get 11 or 12 seats or less than they got in, in, separately in the last session. I think it's more a question of what they stand for. And that is something which is still very unclear because especially Labour being trapped in its own history and merits in a way relying on its position vis-a-vis -vis Labour. And I think, no, I don't think Labour and merits should merge into a, into a joint. I think both parties should 
sort of announced that their, their, their historic role as seen for so many years has ended and they need to come together in a different kind of Israeli left wing, I think also in a new partnership with Arab Israelis as well, in a new political grouping. Right now, they are stuck in history. They're stuck with various establishment uh, uh, frameworks that they don't want to give up, especially labor. Labor has a lot of assets still, financial ones. And these are very difficult things to give up on. And I don't think until... We have a generation of leaders on both parties, and especially in Labour, we don't, we're don't. we not even seeing that generation because even the young prominent MKs in Labour will talk about Labour values and carrying on their history. I think until we see a clear break from that history for, in both parties and, in, and a real, uh, real embrace of the idea of building a new Israeli left-wing party, we'll be stuck in this gewald uh, as vicious cycle of are we going to pr- cross the threshold and can we run together or alone in every election cycle and i think i was saying this uh, at the very last episode of uh, of of the previous season of election overdose but enough of left so if i can sum up what you're saying the party that in 1999 my first campaign campaigned on a slogan of israel wants a change you're saying actually is not ready to change and I guess we'll have to wait and see if it ever gets there. What time is it now, Anshul? Party time. It's party time. <laughs> Whose turn is it? It's my turn. So I have a quiz. Um, which party represents over 50%, even 51% of the voters in Israel, but never, almost never, crosses the electoral threshold in Israel? And this should be an easy question if you think about the parties that we just discussed because it's related. Do you give up? Yep. Okay. This would be almost every women's party in Israeli history. Why is that related to the parties we just discussed? Because if Zahava Galon wins the election, the campaign for the leadership of Meretz, there will be two parties headed by women, which is not always the case. But there have been efforts over the history of Israel to have women's parties devoted to women and led by women. Now, here's another quiz. I mean, this is really too hard. I don't expect anybody to know the answer to these. But what was the only election when a women's party actually entered Knesset? Do you want to guess? I'm trying to remember the last time there was a women's party running for the Knesset. It wasn't that long ago. But when was the last time a women's party entered Knesset? And as far as I know, the only time. Didn't Shulamita Loni once have a women's party? The answer to my question is 1949, the first election for Israel's constituent assembly, the Witso party entered Knesset with one seat. And next question, what was the only time two women's parties competed in an election? Okay, I can answer it for you. Also 1949. The other party was a religious women's party. I think this is fascinating because it just hasn't happened since. There have been other attempts to have a women's party, 1977, 1992, uh, even in 1999, but they all did very poorly, usually getting between point. 1% and 0.3% of the votes. And in answer to your question, Angel, the last time a party, uh, a women's party ran in Israeli elections uh, was the voice of women's party. It was 2020 elections and they got only 2,700 votes representing 0.06% of the vote. Now, the only time a women's party did really well and almost crossed the voter threshold, this is really quite fascinating in my opinion, was in 1999. And this was not formally a women's party, but it was headed by a woman. It was focused on women's issues, even though it had men on the list as well. And that was the party of Penina Rosenblum. She was a former model and a businesswoman known for marketing her beauty products. She, unlike all the other women's parties who ran, got almost 45,000 votes, 1.4%, just shy of the voter threshold. 
And my question is, why why do women's parties not do that well in Israeli elections? Enchil, give me your learned opinion as a male observer, as a, but a very sharp political observer. All I can say is that Israeli men's parties do very well. And we have two parties which are for men only and have never fielded a, a, a female candidate, Shas and UTJ. And I think with all the levity of this uh, of party animal, it's worth making that interjection. So men's parties have done very well and still do very well in Israel. I think that women are too, uh, if I if this doesn't, I hope this doesn't sound like mansplaining, but I, I, I want to think that women are too smart to vote for a narrow interest party such as a women's party. But it's funny that you call it a narrow interest party considering how many niche parties there are in Israel. I mean, we've had parties that were devoted to advancing uh, the establishment of casinos in Israel. We've had parties that are devoted to advancing marijuana. Now it's true, they don't cross the threshold either, but women are 51% of the population. Why is that a niche issue? No, it's not an issue. It's a narrow interest issue. Well, I mean, we have parties again that have so few voters. But, but, but that's what I said. I said, I said women are too smart to vote for narrow people. interest issues, which are theirs. Okay, it's a clever response, but I'm going to give my response. I think that the reason men is, aren't. I think the real reason men vote for narrow interest men's parties like Shas and United Torah Judaism. Well, let's distinguish because Shas doesn't call itself a men's party. It, it doesn't claim to be devoted to men's issues. But I think you correctly point out that it largely does represent men's issues de facto. Uh, but I would say that the problem with women is that when I look as a pollster at the difference between men and women in Israel, there almost isn't any difference. There is nothing that really sets women apart when it comes to the major issues that people vote on in this country, whether it's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Jewish-Arab issues, religion and state, liberal or conservative values, uh, you know, any of the other big issues that people vote on, there's hardly any difference between them. And so that's a huge voter pool, 51% of women, but they don't have very much in common and they are deeply divided by the other issues that parties run on in Israel. I think it'd be fascinating to dedicate a part of one of our future episodes on the polling issues where men and women in Israel do differ, but I think we're out of time now. We're out of time. Sadiq tells me we'll be spending a significant chunk of our summer and whatever season comes next in the election season talking about what's left for the Israeli left. But for now, it's a wrap. This was episode three of season two of Election Overdose. Our producers in Haaretz Studios were Shani Aviram and Maya Benissan. You can, of course, go online and read in Haaretz come all about the ins and outs of the elections. But also, I hope you can find us some other stuff to take your minds off the election while you swelter under the sun or shelter in the aircon. I'm Angel Pfeffer here with Dalia Shendin, wishing you all an excellent weekend and a cool Shabbat. Thank you.